Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Wine Pressing Topics. My name is Grace Jeronek and we are up to episode number four today. Happy New Year and welcome to 2022 and I hope that vintage is shaping up to be a good one for everyone getting close to that time of year. Um, we've got a pretty special episode with Professor Vladimir Jeronek from the University of Adelaide. We are going to be talking about the tiniest and most important members of the wine industry and that is yeast so we had a few things to discuss we got to talk about inoculated and uninoculated ferments um we dived into the discovery of some new yeast strains um and also the importance of drosophilae so fruit flies um, in the fermentation process so a few really cool topics today um probably won't be the only yeast episode we ever do um, but it's a really nice sort of introductory episode so let's get into it this is a podcast about wine and all the little things that make a wine fine play it when you have some time you can listen in your car on a tractor in the vine So, today's expert was born in Prague before coming to Australia at age three with his family. Growing up in Adelaide, he always had a strong interest in science of all forms, which led him to study a bachelor's degree at the University of Adelaide, followed by a PhD in microbiology, focusing on hydrogen sulfide production by yeast during fermentation. He undertook a three-year postdoctoral fellowship at Carnegie Mellon in the US, continuing his research in yeast optimization, followed by a two-year lectureship at the University of Auckland before returning to Adelaide in 97. His work at Adelaide Uni has seen him become the head of Department of Wine Science, and during his time he's educated some 1,500 Vidian Enology students, earned the title Professor of Enology, was editor for the Australian Journal of Grape and Wine Research, and has directed two centres for innovative wine production with around 30 PhD students and he's managed to do all of this while balancing a life as world's best dad but he's here today to tell us about yeast his first love welcome Vladimir oh hi Grace I don't know about first love hello (laughs) why not first love oh that would I can't pick favorites like that okay good um (laughs) thanks for coming on today and taking some time to chat to us about yeast absolute pleasure thank you for having me so I think the best spot to start is to talk about the very basic, what are yeast? Okay, well, for those that don't know much about wine, yeast are the inescapable reality of the wine-making process. So wine, of course, is produced from grape juice, but uh, grape juice has to be converted into wine, and that conversion process is carried out by yeast. And it doesn't matter how uh, a winemaker describes their winemaking process, they always involve Uh, yeast of some description so they're absolutely essential to the process and of course they're not just there to convert the the sugars to alcohol and carbon dioxide through through a process known as fermentation there's a process that was recognized way back when by the likes of Pasteur etc but they do the yeast do a lot more than just convert sugar to ethanol and carbon dioxide they produce uh, a lot of flavor compounds they remove some flavour compounds, they produce some undesirable ones, but they also uh, produce enzymatic activities that release flavour precursors from the grape. So the grape 
you think about wine like a Sauvignon Blanc, it has very characteristic aromas which are linked to that grape variety. You don't necessarily see those in other grape varieties. Well, some of those characteristic flavour compounds only appear in the wine because of the action of yeast enzymes. So yeast do a whole lot of things that transform boring old grape juice into fantastic wines. And in terms of yeast, there's obviously not just one kind. What is the type that's generally used in winemaking if you're, say, inoculating, for example? So absolutely, there are quite a number of yeast species that are associated with uh, the winemaking process. Probably 99% of fermentations, maybe even more, are conducted by using Saccharomyces cerisiae, which is what's commonly known as wine, beer, baking yeast. It's the same species, but there are many, many different strains, and they're all chosen because they have their uh, uniquely desirable properties, whether it's a rapid, reliable fermentation or a particular contribution to the sensory profile or the colour of wine but it's mainly Saccharomyces cerevisiae, mainly uh, selected strains of Saccharomyces cerevisiae are deliberately added to the wine as an inoculum. Um, But even if Saccharomyces is not added, it's highly likely that it will actually appear in the fermentation just by being present uh, in association with the the, the, uh, winery, but also because they are very... Uh, robust in terms of their fermentation performance. So it, it appears that they have actually evolved specifically to uh, to be involved in the fermentation process. And so they're very, very competitive in that regard. They're highly alcohol tolerant. And so therefore they take to, they tend to overtake the fermentation uh, and, and outcompete all the other yeasts that may be there. So in that sense, generally, does that mean that even when winemakers are possibly saying that they're doing wild ferments or what some people call natural ferments, um, does that mean that it would most likely be Saccharomyces as well? It is. It is highly likely. So again, because of that, because of the fact that Saccharomyces is so alcohol tolerant, and it, and it, and it just does remarkably well in a fermentation scenario, uh, it will tend to dominate. And so even if you don't inoculate a fermentation, even if you're conducting you know, a, a wild ferment or an uninoculated ferment. Uh, and sure, there will be lots of other yeast species that have a major role. The likelihood is that at the end of the fermentation, if you look at what, what yeast is present, which yeast has actually finished that fermentation, it's likely to be Saccharomyces cerevisiae. There are exceptions. There's a few, uh, few species, a few other species that have uh, good alcohol tolerance, and they may well be the predominant yeast at the end, but invariably it's Saccharomyces. So why would a winemaker um, choose a specific strain of Saccharomyces, for example? So first of all, I guess, how would you go about choosing the right strain for you? Is it based on variety or the fermentation kinetics, or what would be the best way to start if you were going to choose a yeast? Well, look, I guess if we go back in, in history and see where the 200 or so commercial wine yeast strains actually came from, many of those have actually been selected from wineries. And if we go back to the past before commercially available dried yeast were, were on the market, the practice was I mean, basically all fermentations were, were uninoculated or wild fermentations. So the winery typically relied on the microflora, so they're the uh, the yeast and bacteria that were present either associated with the grapes or in, in the winery. 
And if you think about it, if, if you crush some grapes, you let them ferment uh, spontaneously, if that fermentation goes through to a, a desirable conclusion, then it's likely that those yeasts will actually be fairly common in the winery. Uh, and so they would probably cross-contaminate the next fermentation. And so you're getting this, this perpetuation of the good yeast. If the fermentation turns out to be really undesirable in terms of horrible aromas, vinegar smell, it's likely that winemaker would actually get rid of that fermentation and in so doing get rid of those yeasts. So over time, we've found that the yeasts that predominate in a winery tend to be the good yeasts, the good strains of Saccharomyces cerusiae. And then what's happened um, to make those yeasts more convenient is that uh, starter culture companies have gone to wineries where they know there's great fermentation outcomes with uninoculated ferments, and they've purified the particular Saccharomyces from those, from those fermentations, and they've taken those back to the yeast plant, produced those on a large scale in a highly active form, and dried them down and made, made them convenient. And so um, because these yeasts have been selected from different wineries, and those different wineries are typically making um, you know, different types of wines or, or they, they're in, in different climatic regions, the microbial populations associated with individual wineries tend to be different. And so that's partly driven by the conditions, it's partly driven by the winemaking uh, approaches. And so that's why there's lots of strains on the market and the starter culture companies will promote particular strains for a particular scenario. So for example, if you're making say a Riesling, that's likely to be a cool fermentation. It's likely to be one which is, doesn't ultimately reach very high alcohol content uh, because you're looking for a nice acidity. So that fruit tends to be harvested early. So the yeast that does well in a Riesling has to do well at low temperatures and doesn't need to deal with a lot of alcohol. Conversely, if you isolate a yeast from a winery where they're making really full body red wines that achieve high alcohol content, the fermentations get really hot, 30, 35 degrees Celsius. So the sort of yeast that has to survive that condition is going to have very different properties. And so, so if you isolate yeast from those two different wineries, they'll have quite different properties. They'll be, they would have evolved or been adapted for a particular niche. And that's why when you then commercialize those yeast strains, you would probably recommend those yeasts for use in the sorts of environments or the sorts of fermentation scenarios from which they were isolated. So if um, you're deciding, for example, between inoculating and not inoculating, what are some of the risks, I guess, if you're not choosing a yeast that is suited to your environment with um, a, wild, a wild ferment, I guess? Is it more likely to get stuck or not necessarily? Yeah, well, look, it, you know, with a lot of things in winemaking, it, it depends. And I guess the reason why a lot of winemakers use a commercial preparation of dried yeast is that, A, they know that the strain has been selected to generally have good fermentation properties. So, uh, you know, quick, reliable fermentation, uh, not require too many uh, nutritional additives to keep it going. Uh, it's likely to finish fermentation, so it's unlikely to get stuck. It's likely not to make too many undesirable aroma compounds. Probably makes the nice ones that we do want. Um, so they're, they're, so so if you use a commercial strain, it probably has those properties, and it probably comes with a recommendation that it's used in scenario X. The criticism that comes with um, those commercial strains 
or the criticism that sometimes comes with those commercial strains is because those yeasts are so effective at dominating the fermentation, you tend to have a single yeast conduct the bulk of the work of fermentation. And so that yeast is responsible for the bulk of the sensorial changes that occur in that wine. And, and sometimes wines made with a, an inoculated yeast strain can be described as being less complex uh, than uninoculated fermentations. The reason is that when you think about an uninoculated fermentation, you've got many different yeast species with quite different genetics and metabolic capabilities. And so they produce a whole lot of different metabolic outcomes and sensorial outcomes in the wine. Uh, and because there are so many of them, there's great complexity and interaction. And so uninoculated fermentations will often result in a more complex wine. The trade-off there is that they may not necessarily finish because unless the Saccharomyces appears, they will probably conk out towards the end of the fermentation when the alcohol concentration starts to get too high. And the other problem is that you're often starting with a much lower uh, uh, initial population size. So with a dried yeast, you usually put in 5 million cells per mil, uh, per milliliter. With an uninoculated fermentation, there may well be um, you know, one thousandth of that, so quite a few less per mil. And so they take more time to actually build up in numbers and achieve uh, a population size, which then is able to affect a you know, vigorous um, uh, fermentation. Hmm. Um, so let's say I go to work tomorrow and I create the perfect wine and it doesn't get stuck, tastes and smells exactly how I want it to, but I don't know what yeast it is, so it was a, a wild ferment initially. Is there a way that I can make sure that that is the yeast that continues to be present in my winery or is it um, basically impossible to do? Oh, look, I guess what you could actually do, and, and again, this is sort of harking back to the traditional ways. Um, so I mentioned that historically, if a fermentation did well, it was likely not to have gotten scrapped and those yeasts would, would linger in the winery. Well, some winemakers would actually go beyond just relying on that chance lingering and they would actually use uh, a sample of a finished or near finished desirable fermentation as the basis for the inoculum of the next fermentation. So certainly that's one way of doing it is that you use a prior culture as the basis for your next fermentation. The thing you've got to be aware of is that the yeast that have come out of a fermentation at the end of a fermentation are actually quite stressed. You know, they've, they've, had an, they've been in an environment where uh, there's no oxygen, so it's anaerobic. They're probably running out of nutrients. They're probably exposed to high ethanol concentrations. You can't just grab that yeast and turn around and expect that if you put it in a, in a fresh juice, which is high in sugar, no alcohol, a bit of oxygen, you can't expect that they will necessarily cope with that, that dramatic change in conditions. And so what's often done is that that um, culture from the previous ferment might be introduced into some juice and given an opportunity to actually build up in numbers and recover somewhat before it's then inoculated into, into the bulk of the juice. So a bit of an in, intermediate step can actually be helpful uh, and sometimes is, is essential. Sometimes you may find that the end of fermentation yeast from ferment A just won't cope with the shock of going into the new ferment. And is it possible for me to bring my sample to you, for example, and you could find out what it is? Unquestionably, we can do that. 
So we would we could very easily identify the yeast um, by species, uh, but we could we can also uh, using genetic techniques uh, identify the yeast um, you know, by some sort of PCR method. So we can actually identify it down to the strain level. So we can certainly do that. And of course, what I should say though, what I should clarify that point. Uh, species is pretty easy if, from an identification point of view. Strain can be more challenging if it's a strain that's an existing uh, strain that's been described, so potentially a commercially available strain, we could identify it that way. If it's an entirely new strain, uh, then we won't know what it is uh, unless it's in, in a database somewhere. And that's fine. It may be enough for you to know what your yeast is and it may be reassuring to know that it's something new and exciting and unique for your winery. Um, or you may be interested to know whether it just happens to be uh, a carryover from the last time you used a, a commercial yeast strain in your in your winery. Do you often discover new yeast? Uh, we do certainly, and and that's a big focus of our work. We tend not to look in wineries too much for new yeasts. Part of the reason being is that the winery can be a bit of a normaliser of yeast populations. And you do have the challenge of having um, commercial strains that were used previously tending to linger and dominate in a winery. We've tended to go to other environments to try and find interesting yeasts. And so even, for example, even going out into a vineyard might be a, a place to find different yeasts. The challenge with vineyards is that you tend not to find Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is, I guess, the yeast that you might hope to find because of its inherent robustness in fermentation but you do find lots of other non-saccharomyces yeasts some of which have really interesting properties some of which can actually progress fermentation to quite uh, a significant extent and even if they don't finish that's not necessarily a deal breaker because um, uh, what you would then do is that you would over inoculate such a fermentation with uh, a robust saccharomyces to finish it off so you know, when we were talking earlier about commercially available yeast strains, sure, there are hundreds of Saccharomyces strains on the market, but there's now an increasing number, a small number, but an increasing number of non-Saccharomyces yeast that are commercially available. And these are used in the same way as our Saccharomyces. The only difference is that they tend not to finish and you, and you typically have to add a Saccharomyces to finish. So the idea is you let these, these non-Saccharomyces guys go for as long as they can and then you introduce the Saccharomyces to finish uh, the ferment. So we're certainly interested in those non-Saccharomyces that we find in the vineyard, but we're also going even broader than that and looking at um, other environments, uh, typically environments that are high in sugars. So, you know, flower nectars, uh, honey, bees, insects, uh, sap from various trees to try and find uh, really distinct yeast strains that might be of interest in some sort of a fermentation process. So can you tell me a little bit about some research you've been doing recently? Um, I saw that you had released a paper on some Indigenous yeast, some research that you've been doing with First Nations Australians, uh, I think in Tasmania from memory. Can you tell me a bit about it? That's, look, that's absolutely right. We, uh, I happened to listen to a presentation by uh, Michael O'Brien at a, a wine tech conference a few years ago, well, a couple of tech conferences ago now. And he was talking about the fact that Aboriginal people appear to have had quite a lot of involvement in fermentation practices. And this was something which was actually quite new to me. And I think to many people, many people don't realise that Aboriginal people had a very sophisticated knowledge when it came to fermentations. 
And the thing that actually struck me about this is that there must be a myriad of yeasts that are involved in this process that we haven't had an opportunity to actually characterise. And so uh, in working with Michael and the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre and other participants, we started a project a few years ago looking at identifying the yeasts associated with plant substrates that Aboriginal people have used to produce fermented products or that were likely to have fermented. And so this involved some expeditions to Tasmania in the first instance, to the Central Highlands, and we were particularly looking for the, uh, um, the cytogum, Eucalyptus gunnii. And the reason this tree was of importance is because it produces a sap that is very rich in sugar, doesn't surprisingly doesn't have any eucalyptus character whatsoever, but it was a, a material that would actually freely uh, seep from the bark of the tree wherever there was damage, uh, or alternatively where Aboriginal people had actively tapped the trees. And of course, being then exposed to the environment, it would it would ferment spontaneously and produce a beverage that is said to have been of the order of you know, five, six percent alcohol, which is where it gets its name from as the cytogum. So we uh, took a trip a few years ago. Uh, we sampled a lot of cytogums in the process and um, we didn't actually, we didn't actively tap the trees. We just took samples from the bark and the soil. Uh, and we took those back to the lab and we were amazed to just see the enormous diversity of yeasts associated with those. Um, perhaps a little surprising is that a lot of the yeasts were uh, yeast strains that have already been identified in other sites around the world. Um, but there was also an enormous number of yeast uh, species that appear to be entirely new. And so this work was based on sequencing information uh, and that, those, that sequence information suggested that the yeast that we found didn't match up with any known yeast species. So we're really excited about finding some of these truly novel Australian yeasts, if you like, um, and, and looking at what sort of properties they have. So is the idea then to eventually apply them to wine, to isolate them and then use them as a ferment yeast? Or Sure. I mean, that's, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, in the first instance, we're, we're really interested just to know what is there because it hasn't been characterised mm -hmm. before. So there's a, a strong fundamental part to the project. But then, yes, that, that is another possibility that since these yeasts are able to ferment a higher sugar sap, albeit an, the unusual one which comes from cider gums, one would assume that they have the potential to, to ferment other high sugar substrates, whether that's wort for beer production or grape juice for wine production and so forth. And so, you know, with, with the involvement of the Tasmanian Aboriginal uh, Centre, we are actually starting to explore some of those questions to see whether you know, do these do these yeasts have have potential? Can we actually find some sort of an application for them? And of course, the the goal would be to actually return some benefits to to the Aboriginal communities that that uh, historically were involved in these processes. Do you get to name any of these yeasts? Yeah, of course. Um, if we uh, do, in fact, successfully identify some new species, and I, and I should actually hasten to add that despite the genetic genetic sequence information telling us that there seem to be lots of novel species, we haven't actually been able to capture any of those on, on AR plates in the lab. So what that suggests is that maybe we haven't quite got the plating techniques right. So we have actually made a few 
return visits to try and get some of those novel species. But of course, if we do identify something that doesn't seem to match up with an existing known species of yeast, then of course we do have the opportunity to to name one of those. And a convention is that you name a novel yeast species after your favourite daughter. That's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> That's what I assumed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's, that's what I was really getting to. <laughs> but yeah, the convention would be that you would actually, you could name the yeast after, uh, you know, some feature of its properties. Um, so, you know, if it's very fond of a particular sugar, you might relate it to that. I mean, this is why um, uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, our wine yeast, you know, relates to the fact that it actually use, uses sugars, for example. Um, so you might re relate its name to one of its physiological properties or it may be related to where it was found or it may be related to, you know, someone famous in history, a famous microbiologist, for example, that's very common. So that that's kind of open-ended. But what you tend not to do, what in fact the convention is, you don't name it after yourself. Oh. <laughs> so unfortunately, I was struck out on this occasion. <laughs> is anyone still doing these fermentations? Have you Did you get to actually try the drink or is it not something that's being produced anymore? So the, 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 the challenge is that certainly at the time that we started this work about four years ago, that even then the cider gums were listed as being endangered. Um, and, and very sadly, even since that trip, uh, there has there have been significant fires in the uh, Tasmanian Central Highlands. And in fact, a lot of the trees that, that we sampled have actually now been killed off by fires. I was there about a year ago, oh, no. it was really very sad to see that many of the trees that, that I sampled were, were no longer alive. There were a few pockets that were. Um, so the trees are endangered um, and so they're protected. So only um, uh, Aboriginal people are able to, to tap the trees. And in fact, I don't even know if that extends beyond the, the land reserves that they manage. Um, and so my my understanding is that it's actually a practice that's that's very restricted, very limited. Um, so uh, so I don't think that it's being practiced um, very much at all, if at all. Um, so how do you plan on giving back to the communities that have helped you sort of source these these years? Because I imagine it's a pretty difficult process going out and doing the field work that it takes to to get samples. Sure. Yeah, look, absolutely. And, and, you know, as I mentioned, we've we've really just started the fundamental work uh, around looking at what is there, characterising it in terms of its basic microbiological properties. And that was really the main driver for this work. Uh, you know, given that there is potential interest in looking at commercial applications, we're starting to explore that characterisation. Um, and so the process will actually be, you know, one of... Uh, which is undertaken mutually, uh, and that will agree that you know we want to see you know hey can we use some of these yeast strains in wine fermentations or can we use them in in beer fermentations and of course every step of the way we'll always be doing that with a view to seeing how can we actually return benefits back to the uh, the communities that have the um, you know the indigenous knowledge about these processes. I mean we're very conscious of the the Nagoya Protocol around the sharing of benefits from natural resources. And Australia's not actually, uh, 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 hasn't actually ratified the protocol, but they have 
a lot of policies in place that are analogous to that. So we've, we're very conscious of that. Uh, and we you know very much, if we are going to go down the commercial route, route we very much want to see that there are benefits back to the, um, the original communities. That's good. That's exciting. Is there any other research that you're doing at the moment that you think is very groundbreaking or oh, your, Grace, well, obviously all your research is groundbreaking? But. Virtually everything that we do is groundbreaking. Sadly, the funding bodies don't always agree with us, Yeah, right. <laughs> which makes it a bit hard to pursue some of that research. But we're doing, we're actually doing some really interesting work at the moment, looking at the interactions between um, yeast and fruit flies, or vinegar flies, I should say, so Drosophila. So every winemaker will be aware of the, the vinegar flies that hover around fermentations at various times oh, of the yeah. year, and they probably are a bit paranoid about the fact that these flies are introducing you know, acetic acid bacteria and other yeasts. And the reality is that that's probably true. I don't know that anyone's really shown that in, in great detail. And so that's that's one aspect of our work where we're looking to actually demonstrate that definitively using tagged yeast strains. But the other thing we're interested in exploring further is, is you know, clearly there's a, a very tight relationship that has evolved between yeasts and flies. So yeasts are non-motile. They can't move around when their pocket mm. of fruit becomes desiccated and no longer nutritious, whereas flies are motile. Uh, but flies do also have yeast as a major part of their diet. So you can see that the two have evolved to, to interact and to help each other out. And we're just trying to tease apart what is, what is the extent of that coevolution? What are the traits that yeast has accumulated to, to attract and benefit flies? And conversely, what, is, what, is, what do flies do that actually benefits yeast in, in, in return? So, so that's some really interesting work. Difficult to get funding for, but we're sort of pursuing that through various channels and getting some really exciting results. In fact, it looks like now that we've shown that, that yeast actually also influence the behaviour um, or the response, or, or rather res respond specifically to the presence of flies. So just by flies being there and, and wafting their fly aromas, that seems to trigger a response in the yeast, which is, which is really very exciting and fascinating. That is cool. So not all bad. Not all bad. Uh, a very interesting relationship, uh, co-evolution relationship to explore. They sound like bees of the wine world. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a question I do like to ask everyone that comes on, you may have heard it, you may know it's coming, is if you're stuck on a desert island and you can only take one wine with you, what would that one wine be? So, of course, Grace just invokes a lot of questions before one can answer fully. <laughs> and so questions are around, you know, refrigeration, optimal cellaring temperatures, et cetera, et cetera. If it's a desert island, it's probably going to be warm. The reality is it can't be one wine, let's face it. I mean, otherwise, <laughs> one wine, then the wine industry would be dead. Yeah. But certainly the two wines that I, I actually know three, the three wines that I would take would be a sparkling, a white and a red. Now, of course, my red would be, a hogshead of Pinot, which incidentally would be bottomless. So the actual size of the container is irrelevant. Of course. Sparkling wine, you know, a fine Australian sparkling or a champagne, a must, but it has to be at the right temperature. Of course, chilled. And then um, in terms of a white, oh, I don't know, a crisp Chablis or something. But again, we need refrigeration. So I'm assuming <laughs> there's a cave on the desert island that has. There is a cave, a temperate cave with a cool room and a slightly warmer 
Pinot room for the hogshead. Perfect. So all I need is an ice bucket so I can keep my champagne cold when I'm sitting on the beach. So there's my answer. I would be I would be very happy with those three. Lovely. <laughs> you settled on three. That's pretty good. Better than some have done. Better than some. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And talking all things yeast. Learned a lot. I'm sure I'll see you around somewhere, somehow. <laughs> Great to see our graduates move out into industry and do as well as they are doing and continue to excel. So well done to you and your, your classmates. Thank you. I'll, I'll let them know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Grace. Thank you all so much for listening today. I hope you learned something new and enjoyed the episode. Um, of course, thank you to Professor Vladimir Jeranek um, from Adelaide Uni for coming on and giving us a little bit of insight. Um, and as always, I'd like to take a minute in the spirit of reconciliation to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We power respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. We'll see you in the next few weeks. Thanks. This is a podcast about wine And all the little things that make a wine fine Play it when you have some time You can listen in your car on a tractor in the vine In the barn